Welcome to East Hills Alliance Church. Real people experiencing real change because of a real Savior. We uh, all go out on a limb here and say all, at least most of us, we all love uh, a good award, a good reward. We, we like to be recognized for the things that we do, the things we contribute to some team or, or something going on in our lives. We, uh, we love to see the people that we love recognized for what they do and their contributions and their work. We love it so much as a society that somewhere 40 years ago or so, we invented a thing called the participation trophy, just so everybody would get rewarded for the things that they do, the bane of the millennial existence, because the same people who gave us the trophies are mad at us for receiving them, and we don't know how that works. Okay, that's a soapbox for later. Around, <laughs> around your tables, would love to have you chat about this question. Today, in your, maybe not today, today, but in your life where it is now, as an adult, as a teenager, in your life today, if you were to receive a participation trophy for your life, what would that participation trophy be for? Participation in what? Feel free to be get creative and weird about this. Talk among your table, consolidate tables as you need to get together with other people, uh, chat about if you were to receive a participation trophy today at your table or online, what would your trophy be for? Participation in what? Give you about 60 seconds to chat about that. All right. Participation trophies. Uh, also, forgot to say, you should probably make sure you know the names of the other people at your table. So if you haven't done that yet, do that in whispers real quick. Get to know each other. Oh, I just gave you permission to keep talking, didn't I? Well, that's on, that's on me. That's on me. Participation trophies. I, I want to flip this question for us a little bit, and you won't have to talk about this at your table. I want to kind of invert this question and say, okay, that's what you would get participation trophy for. These are the things you are engaged in, you're participating in in some way. Reflect with me a little bit. What stops you from participating in something? What stops you from engaging in the world around you and the things going on? From going to that family event, from joining in that conversation, from getting behind that cause, 
from saying something that you feel like should be said? What stops you from engaging in participation with church people, with the world around you? What stops you from chasing that dream that you've had for a long time but never felt like you could get going on? Money, time, confidence. I heard a marketing expert named Seth Godin in an interview recently relate this story that I wanna share with us. Caught my attention for the truth buried in it. So I'll try to pull that out of here. Uh, Godin is promoting a book right now on climate change. So that's what he's talking about, but that's not really the point of sharing this quote. The, the point is what one marketing strategy could teach us about how we use or don't use our voice. So here's what he said, quote, everyone who is listening has heard the phrase carbon footprint and been told that we need to lower our carbon footprint. That phrase was invented by the ad agency Ogilvy and Mather, and I looked it up, it was in the year 2000, and their client was British Petroleum, BP, the second largest petroleum company in the world, hired an ad agency to come up with something that they landed on carbon footprint, and this is not dismissing carbon footprint as a thing, but BP knew that they could empower us and in doing so, move the onus onto us and deflect from the criticism they were receiving at the time. He continues, and, and here's the truth for us. BP hired them to invent carbon footprint for a reason. Because if you feel like a hypocrite, you're not going to speak up. The fact is, we're all hypocrites. And whether or not you have a spiritual faith or not, if you've been in a room with someone preaching at you, they're a hypocrite too. Hi. He said, we need to let the hypocrites speak up. Because how are we going to get better because there's no one who's not a hypocrite. So here's the truth for us this morning, maybe an uncomfortable one. <laughs> you are a hypocrite and hypocrites change the world. For example, well, let's, let's define hypocrite first before I get into example because every one of us is a hypocrite. Everybody who's ever failed at something is a hypocrite. Everybody who's ever accomplished a great impact on the world, changed the world for the better, has at some point been a hypocrite. So let's make sure we're all using the term the same way. Jesus used the term hypocrite in scripture. It basically meant whitewashed tomb. In other words, his accusation levied against people is that their character was rotting on the inside. They were dead on the inside, but they were trying to make it look good on the outside. For our purposes this morning and, and for how we use the word today, and I believe this still lines up with how scripture introduces it to us, let's define hypocrite this way. Hypocrite is anyone whose beliefs, 
and actions and words don't line up. Anyone whose beliefs and words and actions are not aligned. Okay, for example, if somebody says, or somebody believes, start there, if somebody believes that kale tastes good, and they say that it tastes good, and they eat it like it tastes good, they are not a hypocrite, because all of those things line up. They are wrong, but they are not a hypocrite. (laughs) If somebody believes that kale is healthy for you, and they say that it's healthy for you, and they eat it like it's healthy for you or them, then they are also not a hypocrite, and by my understanding, are also telling the truth. If I were to tell you that kale tastes good, and I were to eat it like it tastes good, I would be a hypocrite, because I do not believe that to be true. Similarly, if I believed it to be true and I told you it was true, but I refused to eat it because I didn't want to be judged as a kale eater or something, I don't know, I would be a hypocrite, okay? Maybe a more serious example. Actually, definitely more serious example. One of the things that has uh, caught my attention, a hypocrisy in me over the last couple of weeks Given recent events in our country's politics and courts, there are probably, I believe, some things that need to be said by somebody in my position. That as courts and politics debate things like abortion and what is legal and what is not. I saw another pastor who I I don't know, frankly, um, post the week after the recent decision, that he hoped to see churches around the country lined up around the block to lead the charge in adoption and foster care. The truth is, whether your reaction to recent events is that you're really concerned about moms and moms in poverty and what they're going to do to take care of their kids and if they're just going to start giving them up for adoption or whatever it may be, or if you're excited that there are more lives who have the opportunity to breathe oxygen, either way, the right response and the biblical response is to take care of those in need, to take care of the widows, the orphans, the moms, the babies. And I don't want to stand up here and say that because I feel like a hypocrite. I have two beautiful daughters, neither of them adopted, neither of them fostered. We have talked at different points about foster care and adoption. It is not something that we have leaned into and done. There may be really good, there are, I think, really good reasons for that. But the doubt in me of if I'm doing enough if I have done enough, if I have said enough, creates in me this feeling of hypocrisy. And so I don't want to say things that need to be said. I think this is one of the effects of being a hypocrite, (laughs) is that one of the devil's favorite tools and favorite games is to convince us that because we're a hypocrite, we should just sit down and shut up and not do the next right thing 
because we didn't do the right thing or say the right thing last time. Which brings us back to our truth and a story. You and I are hypocrites and hypocrites change the world. For example, the guy Jesus tapped to lead the global church. One of the key reasons you and I are sitting here today, a guy named Peter. After Jesus's death and resurrection, he told Peter, essentially, there's this far more dramatic scene than I'm going to relay of Jesus and Peter eating breakfast on the beach. And essentially Jesus says, Peter, I love you. You're in charge. Bye. Okay? Basically, a little, a little more thorough than that, but, but not a lot. Basically, it's Peter, I love you. You're in charge of taking care of the people. I'll see you later. And so Peter is now leading this incredible movement, and we see him do some incredible things. There's also a story relayed in scripture of Peter's hypocrisy. One of the things that I really appreciate about scripture is how messed up the people are in it. Because <laughs> it makes me go, ooh, I recognize myself in there. That's good to know. And God's faithfulness to them. In this case, Peter is called out by another church leader named Paul. Like called out in a letter to an entire church in a story about how he was called out in front of all of his friends, basically. And it's gonna be in Galatians chapter two. And so we're gonna dig into that story in just a second. A little background on this story so we're all on the same page. Background here, you need to know three people, two groups, and one tension, okay? The three people, I can put up three fingers, the three people are Peter and Paul, a guy named James. All three guys were raised Jewish, have converted to Christianity following Jesus with their lives. They're leaders in the Christian movement. And we'll talk a little bit more about that in just a second. They all have incredible bios that I'm not gonna get into this morning, but uh, are worth digging into. The two groups of people you need to know are Jewish people and Gentile people. And for some of you, maybe many of you, these terms are gonna be familiar, but just so we're all on the same page, the Jewish people were the people of what is now the Old Testament. They were the people who followed the wisdom, the law, which as Sky helpfully taught us last week, is essentially the wisdom and ways of their God. Is that our life subscribes to this God and these ways and this wisdom. Gentiles then, to the Jewish person, is anybody else. Anybody who does not follow our God and follow his ways, okay? Jesus was Jewish. And so as the church movement spreads, you have Jewish people converting to following Jesus with their lives. You have Gentile people converting to following Jesus with their lives. Many of these Gentile people come from backgrounds where there wasn't one God, where there are multiple gods and they had lots of rituals in place to help appease those gods or to make the gods happy or to make the gods do what they wanted them to do. And they're trying to come together and form communities of people together, Jesus following communities. And that's leading to our significant tension. The tension is if Jesus was Jewish, does that mean that all of these Gentile people need to become Jewish? 
Do they need to follow exactly the ways and wisdom of God as prescribed in the Old Testament of our Bibles? Do they need to specifically follow the laws on circumcision and on food? Now, for the guys particularly, this was a uh, sensitive conversation. And, and then the food thing, I mean, it's food. And you're saying, I mean, we'd have to give up, but I really like, I really like this food over here. You're telling me I have to give up. I don't know about it. Do I have to? This is where James, Peter, and Paul and the other church leaders come in. James is overseeing the church in Jerusalem this metropolitan church that is mostly Jewish people. The vast majority are people who were and raised Jewish who are now following Jesus. Paul has gone out into the other nations and the countrysides, and he is starting churches in all of these Gentile locations. And so his churches are perhaps mostly Gentile, a combination of the two where this friction is most clear. And then Peter is living in Jerusalem and visiting these outlying churches and trying to kind of oversee the whole thing. Now, James and Peter and Paul and the other church leaders have come to an agreement that this doesn't need to happen. The Gentile people do not have to convert to Judaism and to all of the Jewish ways in order to follow Jesus. They have some specific things they want them to do. And you can find this story in Acts chapter 15 and kind of the things they lay out for them. And, and so they've come to this, this agreement that, no, you don't have to eat all the same things we do. and You don't have to go through all the same procedures we go through. They had some, just a few things, hey, you need to do this. And Paul, or sorry, and Peter was part of that decision making. And yet we come to a story where Peter has some trouble getting his beliefs and his words and his actions to line up, specifically to get them to line up from one day to the next. So we're in Galatians chapter 2 starting in verse 11. And this is Paul writing a letter to the church in Galatia retelling this story, okay? But when Peter came to Antioch, I had to oppose him to his face for what he did was very wrong. When he first arrived, he ate with the Gentile believers who were not circumcised. But afterward, when some friends of James came, Peter wouldn't eat with the Gentiles anymore. He was afraid of criticism from these people who insisted on the necessity of circumcision. As a result, other Jewish believers followed Peter's hypocrisy and even Barnabas, who was Paul's ministry partner, even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. When I saw that they were not following the truth of the gospel message, I said to Peter in front of all the others, since you, a Jew by birth, have discarded the Jewish laws and are living like a Gentile, why are you now trying to make these Gentiles follow the Jewish traditions? You and I are Jews by birth, not sinners like the Gentiles. Yet we know that a person is made right with God by faith in Jesus Christ, not by obeying the law. And we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we might be made right with God because of our faith in Christ, not because we have obeyed the law. For no one will ever be made right with God by obeying the law. Now, Peter ostensibly believes that those who believe in Jesus do not need to follow the Jewish laws about circumcision and food. He's, 
He's said so already. Even if I'm wrong about when this letter is placed in history, there's an even earlier story about Peter and a dream from God, a vision from God that reveals to him that things have changed and that people can come to God without following all of these same food laws. But when his boys from Jerusalem show up, he changes his position to fit in with a different crowd. And Paul calls him out for it. So a question and some speculation to talk about around your table. What is Paul feeling when he rebukes Peter? And what is Peter feeling in being called out? Again, some speculation on our part. Try to put yourself in their shoes. Take a few minutes and talk this out. What is Paul feeling as he has to challenge Peter? And what is Peter feeling in being challenged in front of all of these people? Talk about it, type about it online, and I'll call us back together in a couple minutes.
to wrap up conversation. I think for most of us, it is easiest to identify with what Peter was feeling, that we have been there. Maybe we've been where Paul is, recognizing a wrong around us and, and speaking up to correct it. Most of us have experienced what it is like to need to be corrected by somebody for some reason. Familiar with those feelings. Maybe Peter is feeling ashamed or embarrassed. Maybe he's angry or defensive. Maybe he's feeling shut down or silenced. What's interesting to me is that the Paul doesn't actually ever tell him that he has failed. He, he doesn't look at him and go, really, Jesus chose you? Really? He doesn't tell him he's got to stop sharing the gospel or stop leading. He just wants to see Peter's life line up. Both for Peter's sake because when our beliefs and our words and our actions don't line up, that gap is exhausting to try to hold on to. The tension of that wears us down. But also for the sake of the story that Peter is trying to tell with his life and his leadership. He's trying to share the story, the good news, the truth of Jesus and who he is and what he's done. And as holes develop, gaps between Peter's beliefs and his words and his actions, people will start poking holes in Peter's life and use those holes to dismiss the story that Peter is trying to tell. Paul's saying the story is too important. The truth here, what we've committed our lives to, Peter, it's too important. I want to see your life Line up. In Jesus' teaching, he is clear that there is an enemy against humanity that scripture calls the Satan or the devil. And I really do believe that this silence from hypocrisy is one of the devil's favorite tools, one of his favorite games to play. Because if he can accuse you of being a hypocrite, the shame that comes with that often leads to silence and shutdown. And part of the hard part is that the accusations from the devil in this situation, the tools he's using, they're true. <laughs> you really did fail to speak up. You really were too lax when that thing happened. You didn't act last time. The devil can come at you with, hey, where were you when they needed you? You're going to act now? Oh, you're going to say something now? Well, what about what you said two years ago? And the truth can shut us down and make us feel like, well, I didn't do it right last time. I have no right to do it this time. I didn't say it last time. I have no right to speak up this time, even though it's true and right. And I think it's the devil's favorite game because when you feel like a hypocrite, you don't want to talk about it. And when you don't talk about it, you feel alone. 
And when you feel alone, you're isolated. And when you're isolated, you're not sharing or receiving grace. And if grace is not shared and received, then Christ died for nothing and the devil wins. Now, the truth is that Christ did not die for nothing. Christ died for your hypocrisy and for mine. Christ died for you and your sins, for me and my sins, for your neighbor and their sins, so that all of us might have the opportunity to share and receive grace. And the truth is that you are not alone. We are all hypocrites. We all have places in our life where there's a gap between what we believe and what we do and what we say. We are all hypocrites who can see our lives changed, who can lean on the grace of Jesus, who can learn from our mistakes. Being a hypocrite does not make you worthless. According to the words of Jesus, it makes you worthy of rebuke and of forgiveness, of correction and love. You are not defined by yesterday's disobedience, but through the grace you have the opportunity to, but through his grace, you have the opportunity to do the next right thing today. Paul calls Peter out for being too focused on obedience. Why? Not because obedience is a bad thing, but because according to the teachings of Jesus, obedience and ritual and manipulation is not how we engage with God. It's not how we achieve the forgiveness or the love of God. That Christ died so that we would be able to receive his grace, so that we would experience his forgiveness, so that we would see how far the love of God would go. And Jesus taught that obedience is the right response to that love. That as we receive the love of God, we respond in our obedience. That ritual is a really good reminder to us of the love and the forgiveness of God. But these things are a gift. We're not trying to earn them. We're not trying to earn God's favor by manipulating him with our obedience. Now, I'm not suggesting that we all just be satisfied with being hypocrites and kind of go about our lives continuing to hurt people with our misaligned life. I am saying, don't let the devil win by stopping you from doing the next right thing, from saying the next right thing, just because you didn't do or say last time. I'm saying don't let the devil win by convincing you you are defined by the mistakes of your past when you're defined by the grace of God. But I'm also saying don't give the devil more ammunition for your shame by continuing to be a happy-go-lucky hypocrite. Paul and Jesus and all of scripture are very clear that our hypocrisy, this looking good on the outside but rotting within, has got 
to change. That's, that's that rebuke part that comes along with the grace. Jesus isn't satisfied to let us keep hurting each other and arming the devil. It has to change. And we know this. We don't want to be hypocrites. We want to see our lives line up. We want to be obedient to God. We want to respond to his love in that way. And so most of us approach this idea of not being hypocrites in essentially a two-step process. So I'd like to give us those two steps, see if they sound familiar, and then maybe give us a third step to try instead. The first thing that we try to do to avoid being hypocrites is we decide that we are going to be perfect. This is how it works. I will not be a hypocrite because I am perfect. What I believe and what I say and what I do will all line up perfectly. They will all be true. It will all be perfect response to what God has taught. And, and that way, I am not a hypocrite, which makes sense. The way to not be a hypocrite is to have everything in your life line up perfectly. Okay. Now, Jesus is working on us, okay? Uh, and, and, and he's growing our character and, and developing us. And, and all of that is very true. And I do not want to shortchange any of that. That process does take some time. Some of you are further along in that process than some of us. It takes some time. It seems, by my understanding, through my life and watching the lives of others, it takes some things that hurt to kind of work through some of that stuff and, and, and sand away the rough edges and prune away the, the dead parts of our lives. And, and so we're aiming to be perfect. We're trying to open our lives to Jesus and say, okay, Jesus, would you make me perfect like you are? And he is responding and he is working on us. But it typically doesn't happen as fast as we like and we tend to stumble and make mistakes in the meantime. And so when we fail to be perfect, uh, most of us uh, go to step two, which is if I can't be perfect and can't avoid being a hypocrite, I will just fake being perfect, and at least I won't look like a hypocrite to other people. Okay, so this is actually the definition of hypocrisy, but we try it anyway, because if, if I, I'm not going to be able to avoid being a hypocrite, at least I can avoid looking like one. And maybe if I can just convince everybody that I have it together, that I can hold it together, that, that if you just ignore the stuff behind the curtain, my beliefs and my words and my actions all line up perfectly, and, and I'll just walk into church, and I'll pretend like I've got it together, and um, everything lines up really well. And if somebody points out that there's something in my life that does not line up particularly well, I'll just make sure that I point out the hypocrisy in other people that's worse than mine, and then I can still fake being perfect-ish and, and avoid the label of hypocrite, because the goal has changed by this point. It, I'm not trying to not be a hypocrite anymore. I'm just trying not to be labeled as one and, and seen as one. This is much faster than trying to let Jesus work on my life over time and through some ups and downs and painful events. So we try this route. I would like to propose that there is not only a better way a hypocrite but that it's even faster than faking being perfect and a whole lot less exhausting. Ready? Try this step. Admit being a hypocrite. That as we admit 
to being a hypocrite. As we're saying, look, there are things in my life that don't line up the way that I want them to. There are areas in my life that don't reflect the character of Christ the way that I know they should. We're not faking anything. We can take all the pressure off of the performance of it. And it is step one in not being a hypocrite. And at least in that area, the song and dance of trying to pretend we're perfect, we can say, I'm not a hypocrite. I'm telling you, I know, I'm aware. Yes, I'm a hypocrite. Yes, I'm not perfect. But the story that I'm trying to tell with my life is not about my perfection anyway. The story that I'm trying to tell with my life is a story about the grace and the forgiveness and the love of Jesus about what Jesus has done for this hypocrite. That's the story I have to tell. There is no other story more important and there is really no other story I can tell with my life that matters. I don't have a story of me being perfect and neither do you. And the harder we try to tell that story, the more off course we go and the more hypocritical we become. When we can say, look, I am a hypocrite and I know it. Let me tell you about the grace of Jesus and what it means to me. The world around us is looking at the church and going, the church is full of hypocrites. And our response over the years has been to argue with them. <laughs> when we would be so much better off just going, yep, <laughs> yes, you're right. And it's not like, gotcha, you caught me. Like, I knew that already. Like, yes, you are correct. We'd be better off admitting it and falling on the grace of Jesus. And say, yeah, yeah, we are in need of this grace and the transformation God wants to do in our lives. I was amused by a cheeky sign that I saw on the internet this week. It said, the church isn't full of hypocrites. There's plenty of room for you too. At your tables, chat about this question for a few minutes. What are the hardest parts of admitting to and dealing with hypocrisy? What are the hardest parts of admitting to and dealing with a hypocrisy in your life? Talk about it for a few minutes and I'll call us back together.
right, wrap up conversation around your tables. Maybe not as, quite as much enthusiasm for that one as some other ones. Uh, one quote and two points, and then I'm, I'm all done. Billy Sunday, the famed early 20th century evangelist, said this, and the quote's up behind me. Hypocrites in the church, yes, and in the lodge and at the home, don't hunt through the church for a hypocrite. Go home and look in the mirror. Hypocrites, yes, see that you make the number one less. You and I have a history of hypocrisy. But don't let the wrong thing you did before stop you from doing or saying the right thing today. Every person who has made an impact has been a hypocrite at some point. You and I are part of a church full-ish, there's room for more, full of hypocrites. It does not do anybody any good if all we're doing is looking for the hypocrisy in others. <laughs> so we go home and we look in the mirror and we seek to make the number one less. Not because we want to obey to manipulate God to try to change God's feelings about us. We, we can't. <laughs> he loves you, no matter what. But because it is the right response to that love. So how do we do that? How do we respond to the love of God by seeking to not be a hypocrite? A couple of questions to reflect on this week that may feel fairly obvious, but let's ask them anyway. First one is, does your life line up? Or maybe better said at this point in the sermon, what parts of your life don't line up? Where in your life does what you believe and what you say and what you do incongruent, misaligned? Could be in a number of different areas. How about gossip? Maybe you say that gossip is wrong, but do your other words reveal something different? Or lust or anger? Is what you believe matched in your behavior? How about hope? You say you believe we have a hope in Jesus that our lives are changed, that the way we look at the world is different because of the hope that Christ gives us. But your words or your actions or your posts seem awfully hopeless. What parts of your life don't line up? And then the necessary follow-up question, what needs to change? What needs to change? In what area of your life this week could you do something or say something different so that it better matches what you believe? You may have multiple areas in your life that require some realignment. I am familiar. This week, pick one. 
Pick one and say, this, this needs to change. Take it to Jesus and go, I want to be more perfect. <laughs> I want to work on this with you. Jesus, I'm grateful for your grace because here's the hypocrisy in me. Here's where I have messed up. And he's gonna go, yeah, I know. And I love you and you're forgiven and let's work on it. What area in your life today, this week, do you wanna to take to Jesus to confess to him and say, hey, can we work on this together? Because he is good and faithful and forgiving and loving and true. And he absolutely wants to go to work in that area in your life. So as we do that, let me pray for us. Jesus, we bring our misalignment to you. Our sins of omission of not saying and not doing. We bring to you the ways that we have said and done things that don't actually match what we believe about you and what you say about us and what you say about the people around us. Don't match what you have done for us and for the world. We bring our mismatched hearts and minds to you. and ask that you would make us more like you. That we would have the courage to speak as you did, to call out what's true. That we would have the courage to hand out grace like you did. To sacrifice in order to love and serve the people around us. That our lives would better tell the story of your goodness and of your grace. Jesus, would you tell the story of your grace through our lives and would you get the glory and the praise and the honor that you deserve? We ask, we beg in your holy name, amen. Thank you for checking out our podcast. Find out more or connect online at easthillsalliance.org.